Good morning, everyone. Falta Roya Fad Gudzi on Aglish. And as we're looking at Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 to 18 today, as Jason said, I'm not really going to dwell an awful long time on the text because it's, a, it's just basically um, a text of a big, long list of names of, of kids. And um, while it's important and we can't ignore it, it's not going to be the main kind of uh, the main, main course of the sermon today. But before we, we start, let's pray to God that he bless uh, our time together. Father God, we, we thank you that um, we're here as a community, as a family in this room today, um, where you have put us. You haven't put us into a grand, huge, big church, and neither have you put us in a, a small hedgerow covering to meet in, in peace, persecuted by the state like the Catholic Church in this country was long ago, but we have freedom to express ourselves nowadays, Lord, and we thank you for this. We thank you that you've gathered us here today, that we can mull over your word, that we can pray, that we can sing, that we can encourage one another, uh, not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord. So in this text today and in the story of Abraham, uh, teach us something new, make something that was uh, at the backs of our minds, or at the forefront of our mind, I should say, at one stage, make it fresh and new again. Um, give us passion, Lord, to uh, look on the things of, uh, of God with uh, renewed love and fervor and zeal. So, Lord, in all these things, we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know about you guys. I'm looking around here, and there's a few athletes in the room, but uh, I, I like following the track and field in the Olympics, and, and my favorite race must be the relay race. And... I think it's just a wonderful race. I think any, any kind of competition that has a little bit of luck as well as extreme skill is, is a recipe for success. And the relay race is just that. I mean, you have four competitors. You have to try and order them in the right way. Usually they keep the fastest guy or gal till the very end. That they're called the anchor person or the anchor man or the anchor woman. And when the race starts, you're more or less told to run in a straight line, not to bump or not to harass or harry anyone beside you. But invariably, in the push and shove, things happen in the relay race, which are rather unexpected. And that's what I think is so exciting about it. I just love it when someone drops a bat on because someone gave an elbow to someone else by mistake or something like that. But it just reminded me, to, as I was preparing for the sermon, that the Old Testament story is a small bit like, and I, I'm not trying to be flippant, it's a small bit like a relay race. The baton has been carried through the story right down through the pages of Old Testament history to the anchor man. And we can all guess who that anchor man might be. This guy never drops the, 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 the baton. This guy is always victorious, and that's Jesus. But it doesn't happen really quickly. It happens in tiny little increments. And if we start and go back to the start of the race, we can see that in the garden, God created a wonderful creation, and he called it good. And he put Adam and Eve in that creation. And we see that they fellowship with him, and that God, in the cool of the evening, would come down and speak to them. I mean, how wonderful that must have been. But then, of course, we see that sin ruined everything. But God had to judge it. But even in his judgment, we see that he was graceful. He was gracious. And he promised Eve, and he made her a wonderful promise. He said, you know what, he says, I'm going to send someone, your offspring, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to kill the serpent. 
but the serpent will bite his heel or bruise his heel. And you can imagine how Eve at night would be lying thinking, I wonder who this is. Is it one of my lads, Cain or Abel? Well, we know it definitely wasn't one of her lads. And then God gave her a new son, Seth. And she probably was saying, I wonder is it true Seth? I wonder is it Seth? Is he going to be the guy who's going to crush the head of the serpent? It wasn't Seth, but it was through the line of Seth. But the question hangs right through the Old Testament as baton is carried from one patriarch to another, who could be the anchor man? Who is going to be victorious in the race? Who is going to crush the serpent? And so right across the pages of Old Testament, we see God draws like a master artist. He draws out a wonderful plan of salvation, a wonderful plan of redemption. And he's trying to redeem the creation from the curse of sin, which caused it to fall. He's trying, actually, through his son, to bring down the kingdom of God, to break the shackles of sin on the cross, and to free man from slavery, and then to set about to renew the heavens and the earth, inviting us into the kingdom to do that, to participate as participants in the sharing of the gospel, in the blessing, to renew the kingdom again. And eventually, Jesus will rule from an earthly throne in a sort of renewed Garden of Eden, so to speak, where man again can have fellowship with God in the cool of the evening. It's a wonderful picture. And it's even more wonderful than all of us in this room here today if we've accepted this as the truth, as gospel truth, and we put our faith in Christ, that we are invited into God's project of renewing the kingdom, of renewing the world, the heavens and the earth. So as we look at Abraham's story today, we might ask ourselves, how does this renewing come about? Well, the funny thing is, it comes about true sinners like me and you. God uses us, and God mightily used Abraham, as we'll see in a moment. Now, Abraham's story is taken up in chapters 12 to 25 of Genesis. And Abraham today is running with the baton. But really, it's not to glorify Abraham that we're looking at these verses today. It's to see in Abraham's life, how is God sovereign? How is God affecting how Abraham is acting? How is God empowering Abraham to carry out his will and his task? Not that Abraham should get any glory at all, but should bring it back to the Lord again. So thus, we can look at Abraham, and I think this gives me great encouragement. We can look at Abraham and on his life and how God dealt with him and ask ourselves the question, I wonder does God deal similarly with me? Let's have a look, a quick look at the high points of Abraham's life, keeping that question hanging. Is God, or does God, or can God, or will God treat me as he treated Abraham? Or is Abraham somehow radically different to me? Well, we see that Abraham, funnily enough, is called out of Ur, which is former Babylon or Mesopotamia in those days. And it's funny, if anything rings a bell with you with Babylon, it was the fact that Babylon was the home of the Tower of Babel. It was kind of the first stronghold of idol worship. Remember that big tower that was built up? And remember, the ironic thing is, coming from Abraham, who got a name change himself from Abraham to Abraham, and who God said, you know what, I'm going to make your name great. But think of the Babylonians at that time, or the, the people in Babylon. Um, they were trying to make their name great. They said, let's build a tower up so that we can have a name that is great. And, of course, God made their little project tumble but built up the name of Abraham. But anyways, it's ironic that he called this man out of the land of Ur, 
out of the stronghold of worship, even Jeremiah chapter 50 gives it an honorary mention. He says, speaking about this land, he says, it's a land of graven images, and they're mad upon their idols. <laughs> you just imagine what's going on in that land at that time. It must have been, it must have just been a mishmash of, of just idol worship. So God, because he was trying to roll this project out, now singles out one man and a family around this man to carry on his gospel or to carry on the good news of this redemption, this renewing of the heavens and the earth. And we read, if you want to flick back into your Bibles at chapter 12, the first time he speaks with Abram, verse 1 to 4 in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see that in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. First promise. Second promise. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Third promise. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The fourth promise. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot was his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. Now, I know that this particular land of Abram was a hotbed of idolatry, but how would you feel if you got an instruction like that in your life? That you were asked to leave the people that you obviously loved, your home, your culture, everything that you'd known since you were a kid, everything that your family was rooted in, and you were asked to go on a journey into the unknown. Just think about that for a second. Sometimes we read these verses and we kind of think, yeah, yeah, go on, go on, and just read on. This was huge for Abram. This was not something to be treated flippantly. You might be tempted by the four promises, mind you, but it was still a huge step for Abraham, a huge step in faith to actually follow God's instructions. And then we see he did. He was loyal. He was faithful. But there were years of wandering. And there was, it was years before God spoke to them again. In the meantime, we see that Abram didn't cover himself with glory in his dealings with Pharaoh when he said that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. We can see that himself and Lot in those, in, in those first, whatever, 20 years, I think, separated. Lot went one way with his farming community and Abraham went another with his, with his family. We can see as well that he even had to rescue Lot from captivity, from hostage. So a lot of stuff happened, but God was kind of silent. And then God doesn't come in and speak again to Abram till, verse 5, or till Genesis 15. And we can see here that Abram is a small bit discouraged at this stage because the great promise that he'd made to him in chapter 12 about that he'd be, you know, um, the father of, 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 of many nations. I mean, Abram is still childless. So he's kind of reasoning with God, saying, you know, I, God, Sarah and I are still childless. I don't have any heir, but I do have one heir. That would be Eliezer of Damascus. Is he, is he going to be my heir in this, in this project of yours? And God says, no, he's not. You and Sarah will have a son. And then God, we can see, if you want to flick forward to chapter 15, verse 5, takes him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. 
Then he said, so shall your offspring be. So Abram, I'm sure, was scratching his head even more fervently now, wondering, man, how is this going to come out? But Abraham believed God. And this is a high point of his life because it tells us that his response was, and he believed the Lord. And listen to this. God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is a very important verse in, in, in the Bible, in Scripture. And this verse is used often in the New Testament as well as an exemplar of what faith should look like. It's simply believing or trusting in God. When God makes a promise, do you believe it? When God speaks, do you take him at his word? Abraham did, and this was given to him, or he was given the free gift of righteousness. Paul speaks about it in Romans as well. Romans 3. So then God does a remarkably gracious act, and he does the same act with us. He cuts a covenant with Abraham. And covenants in those days, especially the cutting of a covenant, even though it might sound a bit gross and bloody to us today, this was a common way that people in the old days came to agreements. He got some animals, cut them in half, and the two parties that were part of the covenant would walk down, kind of promising, more or less saying, um, if I break this promise, may it be done to me what we've just done to the animals. But in this particular covenant, it wasn't conditional. The two parties didn't have to make conditions. It was an unconditional one. In other words, God himself said, I'm going, to I'm going to keep the conditions of this covenant. It's as if God was saying, Abram, you're probably going to be, you're probably going to be unfaithful at some stage. You're probably going to make up some slip-ups in our relationship. But I'm going to keep all the covenants, conditions, all the promises, because I'm faithful. And you can count on me. So it's God alone who walks down through the cut animals. Abram has nothing to do with it. In fact, Abram was in a deep sleep, it says. So God is faithful, God makes a wonderful promise, and God now says, Abram, I am not going to go back on this promise. You can take my word on it. Nothing will ever separate me from the word that I've just spoken to you. Now, I think this is important because, you know, we may talk about faith, and we may talk about trusting in God, etc., etc., but really, it's, it's when you come to texts like this that you have to get brutally honest and say, well, if God made those promises to Abram, did he keep them? And if he kept them, the promises that he makes to me, will I keep them? Or can I trust in him that he will keep his word when he deals with me? Just think about that for a moment. I mean, when we go through trials and tribulations and we begin to have doubts, or we begin to drift from God, thinking perhaps he's turned his back on us. Perhaps we've just done that one thing too much or that one sin too much that he couldn't possibly love us anymore. God is saying that he's going to deal with us exactly like he did with Abram. He's going to say, I'm faithful. Even though you are faithless at times, I'm going to be faithful. Hang in there. Trust on me because I will not break my word and I will bring you with me. I will carry you. It's in great encouragement and it's the only thing that keeps me going when I uh, go through times of, of troubles and trials in my life, of when I drift, I think God is still holding me. God's not going to let go of me. Even though at times I myself think that God is drifting from me, it's me who's drifting from God. But in this particular text, in this particular covenant, God is saying to Abram, I'm going to keep hold of you. I'm going to be faithful through all your tribulations, through all your doubts, through everything. You can count on me. So I think it's important, if God 
made these promises to Abram. Ask yourselves, did he keep them? And if he kept them, ask yourself, why can't he do the same with me? Why do I need to doubt him? Why can't I trust him? If you're a, not a follower of Jesus here this morning, ask yourself that. There's no reason to believe that these texts are fabricated, that what happened here in the dealings that God had with Abraham um, are myth, are stories with morals in them, perhaps. If this is fact, and God dealt with Abraham like he did, he can deal, and he will deal like that with us too. Well, briefly, let's look and see that he come good on the promises. The first promise was the promise of land he made to Abram. Now, reading our Bible, I think the last time I preached on this as well, I preached on the death of Sarah. And at that time, Abram was, a, Abram was a pretty old man. He was pretty old, and he had no land at all. He had nothing that he could even call his own. And we saw that he made a deal with the Hittite nation, or some of the Hittites, and he managed to procure a plot to bury Sarah in. And this, at the time when Abram was an old man, was the only bit of land he owned. Now you might say, well, hang on now, did God come good on that promise, if that's all he owned? Is there a little bit of faithlessness there on the part of God? Well, no, because we can see in a, a couple of hundred years later that Joshua led all the people into the land that God had prescribed for Abram. Because the promise that he made to Abram was that you and your offspring would inherit it. He didn't necessarily say that Abram would inherit all of the land, just a part of the land. So God came good on that promise. The next promise, it is kind of a twofold one in verses 12, Genesis 12. He made a promise to make Abram a great nation. And as we look at today's text, um, we can see that in Genesis, uh, in verse 11 of today's text, it said that God blesses Abram, or Isaac, Abraham's son. Now, Abraham had a couple of sons. He had one son anyways before Isaac. He had Ishmael. But God didn't choose uh, Ishmael to have his redemption plan, redemption plan played through. It was Isaac. And that's indicated by God blessing Isaac, his son, in verse 11 today. And then we can see in verse 5, it notes there of today's text, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Everything he had to Isaac. And in verse 6, it says, interesting in today's text, he sent the sons of the concubines away. In other words, God has earmarked the family of Abram to be the benefactor of all these promises. The baton will be changed or will be passed from Abraham to Isaac. And Isaac will be protected. His family will be protected by all these other concubine sons being sent out from him. And all the blessings that God had um, had given to Abraham would now pass on to Isaac, again showing that there is a line there through, right through to Jesus. We can see that, yes, he did bless him greatly. Look there at um, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Abraham lived till those two lads were about 15, it's thought, so he saw them uh, till the age of teenagers. Um, we can see then that Abraham had six sons but Keturah, who was also a wife. So they, of course, also spawned nations. We can see as well, look at, let's not forget Ishmael. He had 12 sons. It says in verses 13 to 15 of today's passage, and it lists all of those names. So they went on to be the father of 
the Arab nations it's taught. And again, while Abraham did not see the full, extinct, uh, the full extent of the land blessings, his offspring did, and God was faithful to his word. And he didn't see the full extent as well of the promise to make his nation great, even though he got a great taste of it before he died. He could see that there were suns sprouting up from everywhere at this stage. The other part of that promise as well is that I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, the, the word blessing biblically kind of can mean to, it basically means to make fruitful or to multiply. And it can also mean uh, to be made happy or everything to go well with you, or your welfare has been taken care of by God. Now, we can see clearly, if we've just flicked through the chapters between 12 and 25, that Abraham was a man greatly blessed by God. He was, by the time he died, a very, very rich man, even by today's standards. He'd probably be a millionaire or a billionaire, I'm not sure. He had vast flocks of animals. He had sons. Um, and his name was made great. Now, you might say, how was his name made great? Well, it's funny. God refers himself many times in the Old Testament to as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What an honor that God refers to himself as being the God of Noreen, Jason, and Philip. It would be, you know, boy, I mean, how your heart would beat if you were referred to as that. The third promise he said was, I'll bless you, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. So you have to think, uh, the backdrop of this story of Abraham on this unknown journey is he's a sojourner, he's a wanderer, and they had no rights in those days, hardly. And yet, as he's coming into contact with all the people around him, with the Egyptians and with the Hittites and with the Canaanites, they're all on guard. They're all uneasy with him. They can see, as we were learning in Peter this morning, that he is different to them. And more than anything else, they can see, all you have to do is ask, ask Pharaoh or Abimelech, the Philistine god, they can see that his god is different as well. His god judged their houses um, for what basically was the mess up of Abram when he told Sarah uh, when he went down to the Philistine king and when he went down to Egypt and he told them, look at he said to, to his wife, he said, pretend you're my sister and then things will go well for me. It was rather a selfish uh, and not really a very good husbandly thing to do. But anyways, the wrath of what happened was suffered by these two nations. We see that Pharaoh and uh, Pharaoh's house was judged with plagues, thus fulfilling the prophecy here that uh, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And we see that the Philistine king, all the women in his court, couldn't have any children, again fulfilling this prophecy that God had made to Abraham. And finally... The promise is, the fourth promise was, and in all you and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is a big one, isn't it? We can see here sometimes in Scripture when we come to a part that we don't understand or something that's not very clear, we can ask ourselves, is Jesus here? <laughs> is Jesus hidden in this verse? And I think he is. Paul actually, writing in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, sheds a bit of life on this because Paul is writing to a New Testament church and he's trying to reason with them and he's trying to show them that just as God dealt with the, with the Jews in the Old Testament, um, you are now also included in this blessing. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, 
and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. You know, it's sometimes, as we're reading the Old Testament, it's sometimes hard to see the gospel, isn't it? And it's interesting here that Paul says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So maybe, you know, when we look at or when we read the pages of Old Testament about Abraham here, maybe, we, maybe we're getting it slightly wrong. Maybe Abraham was a lot more aware of what was going on around him that we, that we give him credit to. Because Paul says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. Now, Abraham probably was scratching his head wondering, what does that mean? What's coming around? Well, I think it's an encouraging evidence, and that's the only word I can use for it, that, that God's word is true and that we can trust God's word. Paul is there, 1,800 years later, using this old dusty verse from the Old Testament to speak to the Gentiles, who probably never even heard of that verse, and saying, you're also included in God's plan, because look what happened here 1,800 years ago when God made this promise to Abraham. Now it's coming about. What a testimony, what an encouragement as we read our Bibles, that it's true, that it's faithful, that it ties beautifully the Old and the New Testament, that it's unified. So I think that Abraham saw all those promises, some more than others, come to fruition in his life. And over anything else, we can see from these four promises that God is faithful and God does not go back on his word. So yes, God bought Abraham out of his country on the basis of a promise. But as Jason prays often in this church and says, God does not leave us alone. God does not leave us on our own. He comes with us. He just doesn't save us and leave us on our own. And neither did he do that with, with, um, with Abraham. God has called us out of our former land of sin and now brings us along with him and promises us the new promised land, the land of peace and forgiveness with God. What a picture this is. And I love the picture that Paul paints in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he's trying to uh, tell the people there in Philippi of their partnership with God in the gospel and with him in the gospel. And he says in verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing there is he's cashing in on God's faithfulness again. He's saying, if God has called you out of your land of sin, through your faith in Jesus' work on the cross, he's going he's to pull him with you. He's not going to let you slip. And as we were learning in Peter this morning, he is a wonderful hope kept for you, a treasure in heaven that you can't lose that you can't mess up. Now, how do we view this promise of God when we wrestle our trials, when we wrestle with our trials? It's, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's easy to preach about these things, but what happens when we go through trials? I don't know about you, but doubtful thoughts slip into my mind. You know, you might even find yourself in a moment like this in your life at the moment where you're going through a trial and you're having doubts and you're talking to yourself and that's a good thing. You might be saying, Lord, or talking to God even better, you might be saying, Lord, I'm struggling now. 
I can't seem to see the finish line at this time. I know you've made a promise to me. I know you're not going to let me fail, but it just doesn't look good this time. This time seems different. I'm really stumbling. Help my unbelief, you might cry out. Pick me up and dust me down. And more than anything else, Lord, help me to help you to pick me up and carry me. Because often we resist the Lord, especially in our trials. Or sometimes what I find myself doing is forgetting about the Lord until he calls me back or until he shows me again the error in my ways. What we have to think about is Abraham, like us, was a sinner. He made lots of messes, plenty of messes in his life. He wasn't sort of some sort of superhuman. He, he dealt deceptively with people. He wasn't honest with the Philistine king. He wasn't honest with Pharaoh. He put Sarah in many difficult situations regarding that particular situation as well. He didn't deal with the tension that was between Sarah and Hagar very well at all. But one of the big themes in Genesis is that even though people mess up, even though we mess up, God keeps giving us chances, and we praise him for that. God keeps giving his people chances because he is a faithful God. Now, God had to work on Abraham. There were rough chips that had to be chipped off to make him into something beautiful. But the secret is, when we're going through our rough times as well, let God chip away at you. Abraham, we can see, had a, had a heart that was malleable. He seemed to be in tune with God. He seemed to allow God to chip away at him and to make him into a vessel that was useful for him. And we can see that ultimate test on Mount Moriah when God asks him to offer up Isaac on the altar, his only son, the son through whom the promises were going to come. So Abram had to make a choice now. Does God want me to kill Isaac, even though he's made all these promises to me that are going to happen through Isaac? And of course, we can see that um, it really wasn't. The funny thing was, it wasn't really a test of sacrificing Isaac at all, was it? When God asked him to go up on Mount Moriah with his son, it was a test on Abraham himself. It was actually the sacrifice of Abraham, not the sacrifice of Isaac. Because God was working on his heart at that time. God had asked him, or was asking him, to sacrifice the most precious thing that he had in his life. The thing that he and Sarah relished the most, gave the most time to, gave the most of their heart to, and that was their son. So what God was asking him, and what God asks us, was that he was asking Abraham to put a knife through what was nearest and dearest to him. Maybe it was his self-dependence. Maybe it was his self-centeredness. God didn't intend for Isaac to be killed because if we read Genesis 22, verse 12, God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, fearing there having the meaning of love God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham was willing to sacrifice the nearest and the dearest thing that he had in his life. In other words, Abraham loved Isaac very much, that's true. But he hadn't made an idol out of him. God was his first love. 
And this enabled him to sacrifice his son, so to speak. And then in response to Abraham's obedience, look what God does in verses 17. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessing is repeated and the blessing was based in that case on the obedience. You know, what a testimony to what God can do to us because God speaks to us in a similar fashion. We could say so much about Abraham, but this 25, 30 minute sermon, there's just not enough time. But maybe some other high points, we can see that Primarily, he was a man of faith because he had faith in a faithful God. He was a man, we can see, as he dealt with the other people around him, whose main purpose in life was to glorify God with his dealings for others, with others. He was honorable in his dealings to others. He was a man who was blessed by that mysterious king-priest, Melchizedek. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a man of altars. Four altars he constructed. You can check it out for yourself. All with a different purpose. Very interesting. He was a man of tents. He set up his tent wherever he went as a witness to, to the people around him that he was there because God had him there. And according to the people who knew him closest and best, he was a recipient of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. We can see that in Genesis 24, 27. His own servant commending him when he went in pursuit of a wife for Abraham. So finally, how will we apply this? Well, I know when I read these pages, one thought comes to my mind. I pray to God and I ask God, would you give me a heart like Abraham's? Would you give me a heart that God can work with, can mold, so that your purpose in my life, Lord, can be carried out? Because every time I read about this, I have to remember Abraham was not perfect like me. So we have to allow everyone in this room we have to allow God to work on our hearts because we are part of his mission. We are part of this project to bring in the kingdom of God. And part of the kingdom of God, well, the most important part of the kingdom of God is holding and shining up a light to God and showing that there is a God who cares about the suffering and the brokenness in this world. There is a God who cares about sin. There is a God who is able to offer forgiveness and peace and fellowship again with him. And that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the means by which God does this in our lives is through the Holy Spirit. Because it's the role of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, his mission and his role and his passion is to point us to Jesus Christ. And the great sacrifice, and when we think about it, the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That Jesus went up there willingly. Hebrews says even that with joy he went up to the cross. To take our sin, to take our sin load on his shoulders, the righteous for the unrighteous, to take my sin and your sin, and to die on the cross for us. I mean, we should think more about that and let it sink deep into us. The purpose of it was that God could, could fellowship with us again, like he fellowshiped with Adam and Eve, that we could have peace with God again through the blood of Jesus Christ. The very thing that the Old Testament and the Old Testament's redemption story points to, the high point of the Bible, the high point of Scripture and the high point of God's redemptive plan, Jesus' death on the cross to redeem a people for him, a people like Abraham, 
a family that are all destined for the same home with the same father. So let us remember, as the Holy Spirit is trying to work on us, that he's not a power. He's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. Like the person who's sitting right next to you now. You relate to the Holy Spirit as you would relate to a person. And sometimes the Holy Spirit can get a back seat in religious happenings and in our hearts. But the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is the vessel or the, the conduit that God uses, God himself, to mold us so that we're more and more like Jesus. We can choose to grieve him. We can choose to ignore him. It says, Scripture says that he can be grieved, he can be hurt. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were, sa- by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so Paul tells us to examine ourselves regularly to see if we're walking in the faith. Because we need to walk by faith and not by sight, like Abraham. Because God has a purpose for your life. Wherever you're sitting in this room here today, God has a purpose for you, whether you accepted that purpose or not. And if you were to sit down with your smartest friends and design a purpose for your life or a plan for your life, it would never be as smart or as good or as fitting for your life as God's one. But we often rebel against that, don't we? Even as Christians, we often kind of go, no, Lord, I know you have that plan in store for me, but I'm not ready to take that bit yet. I'm not ready to give up that yet. I'm not ready to put my knife through that yet. But the Holy Spirit tugs at our heartstrings and keeps reminding us. And sometimes these sanctification steps are so small and minute that they're imperceptible at times. But we should be able to see the graph going upwards slightly, but going upwards all the time so that we're more and more like Jesus. So therefore, the most important thing, and one of the most important lessons I think we can learn from this particular um, part of Scripture, verses 12 to 25 in the life of Abraham, is that we have to take a knife to the things that are nearest and dearest to us. Because if we don't, we'll suffer from spiritual stagnation. Our spiritual growth will be limited. And we have to be honest, and we have to ask ourselves, is there something in my life that's stopping me from growing spiritually? What's holding me back? You know, how might I be resisting the Holy Spirit's work in my life right now? Is it doubt? Is it not trusting fully in God? Is it sin? Perhaps it's a sin that you've asked for God to remove from your life, and you don't see anything happening, and you're kind of going, oh, God just won't get rid of this one. Perhaps it's some character trait that you have and you just can't break its grip on you. Well, Paul teaches us in Romans that you have to fight it. You have to fight the flesh. Because as someone else, I can't remember uh, who said it, we're fighting on three fronts. We're fighting the flesh, we're fighting sin in ourselves, we're fighting Satan, and we're fighting the world. But our biggest battle often is with ourselves. But what you have to think about is The victory has been won. And Christ desires you more than you desired yourself that you would have victory. Christ is up there like a father encouraging his young son or daughter as they're running the school race to finish and have victory. And we often don't understand that because it's the will of God that we grow. It's the will of God that we are sanctified. If we look at Paul writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, maybe your battle is not with sexual purity. Maybe it's some other sin, and it probably is some other sin. God has asked you in obedience to kill that sin in you, to show it absolutely no mercy at all. Maybe you've made something an idol in your life, and you don't even realize it. And it could be something good, like maybe you're just a really super hardworking person who has left not enough time for their family. Maybe you're someone who loves your family so much that you have not left enough time for God. We must constantly wrestle with our self-centeredness and show obedience to God by putting to death, putting the knife to anything that's holding us back. You know, it's interesting, in Mark chapter 12, verses 21, or 29 to 31, Mark is speaking to one of, the, or Jesus is speaking to one of the scribes who's testing him, who asked him, what's the most important commandment of them all? And it's interesting, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So God asks for our obedience because he, like the loving father that he is, knows that by, by being obedient to him, we can, he can carry out his work on us. Otherwise, he can't. If we're resisting him, he won't. So put a knife through your self-reliance. Put a knife through your self-centeredness. Trust God in prayer and faith. That's how you lean on the Lord. That's how you put to death and put the knife to what you love most. More than anything else, be encouraged by Abraham and his life and realize that God no less desires that you walk in faith than Abraham did. Because remember, you're a beloved child of his. And if you're not a follower of Christ in this room today, look at how God dealt with Abraham, how faithful he was. He, went, he was good on all of his promises. He will be good if you commit your life to him. He won't turn his back on you, even when you doubt him. Because he, through Jesus Christ, has cut a new covenant with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. As Hebrews says, a better blood than with the blood of any, animal, any animals. And he will not let you down. He won't drop you. He will keep you till the end. Let's encourage ourselves as we leave this morning with Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. The writer of Hebrews says that now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And all said, Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray.
Father, we thank you uh, more than anything else for your faithful, faithfulness to us. Lord, we know in our hearts that we fail. We know we will fail. We know we have failed. We know we will turn our backs for periods in our lives on you. We know we will wander. Uh, but Lord, you will not. We turn around, and who's looking at us but you? So Father, help us to walk closer with you um, this week, this month. Uh, help us to repent when we wander. Help us, to, um, help us to give ourselves hope and give each other hope by reading parts of Scripture that uh, shine a light on the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3. Let us reread that when we're feeling down in the dumps, when sin is leading us away from you, when we're discouraged. Just have, help us, Father, to have a simple childlike faith that when you speak, it's going to be true. You're not uh, a God who deceives. You're not a God who uh, picks us up and carries, for us for a, carries us for a while only to drop us, to leave us on our own. Uh, Father, you are a wonderful God, and we can attest to this, Lord, that you have carried us thus far, that you will be faithful to carry us all the way to the finish, uh, where, we, where you will see us victorious. Um, Lord, what great words they will be when uh, we meet you one day, and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have completed the race. You have leaned on me. You have let me carry you. So, Lord, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you again for your faithfulness. Um, Lord, help us to uh, remind ourselves all the time that you are a good God and that you are a promise keeper. And these things we pray through your Son's name. Amen.